Welcome back to the program. It was Churchill who reminded us that history is written by the victors. This is as true for religious history as it is for military, political, and geopolitical history. We've all been told since childhood of the Christian foundation of America, that the history of America was defined as John Winthrop's shining city on a hill, that the village green represented the Christian apotheosis of America. The fact is that even before the time of Columbus, America has been a pluralistic society, an idea that Jefferson had to battle to prove just as President Obama has in his recent speeches about religion. At a time when technology and globalization continue to draw us closer together, we have a choice. We can either channel our heritage and embrace the religious diversity that has been part of us, or we can pull up the proverbial drawbridges and defend the mythology. This is the world that my guest Peter Manso looks at in his new book, One Nation Under God. Peter Manso holds a doctorate in religion from Georgetown University. He's currently a fellow at the Smithsonian. He's the author of the previous book, Rag and Bone. And it is my pleasure to welcome Peter Manso here to talk about One Nation Under Gods. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jeff, and thanks for that eloquent introduction. Thank you. It's great to have you here. One of the things that that really this brings into bold relief, this discussion, is the sense that, that any kind of mythology, especially one that has been out there so long and that has been so powerful and so deeply inculcated into the country, that the mythology in some ways becomes the reality, that perception becomes the reality. It makes it so hard to begin to really address the underlying facts that, that you talk about. Oh, I think that's certainly true, and that's true of our our sense of history as well as it is our own religious upbringing, whatever that may have been. Uh, in both those contexts, we come to believe whatever stories we've been told. And from the very earliest moments of our educations in this country, we have learned this story about uh, the nation's history and its prehistory being conditioned and prepared by the introduction of Christianity into the North American continent. And while that is certainly part of our history, it's not the whole story. Uh, from the various mo- earliest moments of, uh, in- of uh, encounter between Europe and the Americas, what we had was a, a negotiation, an ongoing compromise between one set of beliefs and many others. And the story that emerged from that is the story of who we became as a nation. Uh, which is a much more complicated story than any of us have learned uh, throughout our education. Is it important then to understand the reasons why the political moments at the time, the social moments, the reasons that this story became so deeply ingrained, the reasons why it became the foundational story of America? Oh, it certainly is. And and when you look back at the history, you see that... um, the reasons can be found very clearly. The, the very notion that we are one nation under God, as the Pledge of Allegiance says, has a very particular history, which does not date back to the founding of the nation, but it dates back only to the middle of the 20th century, uh, when this moment of um, anti-communism in, in American political life uh, wanted to raise up the Christian side of the, of the American experience over and against atheistical communists uh, of the Soviet Union. And so that very notion that the that the, the title of my book, One Nation Under Gods, is arguing against is, is fairly recent in American history. Uh, far older in our history is the sense that we have been under gods from the beginning, gods with an S at the end. From the very beginning, we have been home from, to competing and conflicting ideas. And that, to me, is what is truly interesting about our history. And as you talk about, this is something that even Jefferson not only understood, but had to battle against in his time. 
Oh, yes. Uh, we remember Jefferson as being somewhat of just a live-and-let-live kind of tolerance man. But his, his thoughts on religion actually were much deeper than that. Uh, what he said was actually that difference of opinion is advantageous in religion. He believed that that very conflict, the very, uh, the very struggle between competing belief systems, really would uh, benefit each of those systems individually and the community in which they all were part of. And this was something that you see uh, reflected in his own choice of reading habits. His, uh, his own library at Monticello was famously eclectic in its, its spirituality. And when, that, when those books were brought up to Washington uh, to become the core of the Library of Congress, in 1815, there was a great battle over whether or not Jefferson's eclectic spirituality could be included in the books to which uh, legislators, legislators would, would uh, refer. Uh, there was a great debate in the, in the House of Representatives about whether or not Jefferson was trying to infect the nation with his infidel and atheistical ideas. And ultimately, uh, he, won that, he won that struggle. His books were brought in to become the core of the Library of Congress, uh, where many of them remain today. And that is part of our history, uh, not only that from the very earliest moments there were these eclectic spiritual ideas at large in the country, but there was also a struggle against them, uh, a desire for our, our religious heritage to be uh, far less complex than it truly is. When were the first examples of persecution of those that were different really push back to what was the, the accepted mythology of the time? Well, from the very earliest moment, the, inter the interaction between the, the Spanish uh, and the Native Americans uh, in, in the Caribbean was a, a battle as, as much about differing religious ideas as differing cultures. Um, Columbus, when he saw the, uh, the, native, the natives of the, of the islands he first encountered, said these were a people without any religion. And in fact, they just were a people without religion that he recognized. Uh, they had a very rich uh, religious life, just as as those Europeans were, who were arriving brought with them. And what you find in that interaction is not merely a story of one belief system being entirely wiped out by another. Uh, that's what we assume happened, that eventually most of Native America either embraced Christianity or died in, in protesting against it. But what really happened was the, the dominant faith coming in was equally changed. Uh, the majority culture is changed by minority culture again and again throughout American history. And that's the real story I try to tell in the book. It's not merely a story of, of one culture triumphing over another. It's, it's about the resilience of the minority culture, of those on the margins of the dominant faith. And you find that again and again uh, throughout American history. And another story I, I like to tell in the book, uh, refers to one of the first Jews in the state of Maryland, uh, who in the 1650s, uh, despite the fact that Maryland had uh, what was then known as an act of toleration regarding religious difference, despite that fact, uh, he was put on trial for blasphemy and was nearly hanged for the crime of uh, saying that Jesus Christ was probably a magician. That's how he performed the miracles that <laughs> he performed. And what his experience shows is that this idea of religious toleration is always, um, it's always limited. Uh, tolerance implies that there is one majority belief system that has the power to tolerate or not tolerate those around it. And that experience shows that toleration is not enough. Um, the Toleration Act, in fact, only tolerated those who believed in Jesus in some way or form. And if you did not, then you were not tolerated by the state. And in fact, you could be put, be put to death for that. And you find this, um, through, again, throughout American history, in the story of the Puritans 
in New England is exactly this story. Uh, here is a group of people who came for their own religious freedom, but were not so quick to offer it to others. And so from the very earliest moment, you find the exile of Roger Williams, for example, who is set off, uh, who sets off into Rhode Island to found his own colony. You find the, the hangings of Quakers who, who brought their own variety of Protestant Christianity to bear. And so that really is a common thread throughout the story that I tell in the book, that um, there is this uh, suppression of, uh, of those who, who believe differently from the majority culture, but there's also resilience. Um, those with, with uh, beliefs in conflict with the majority find a way to endure. It's interesting that dominant faiths had so much insecurity, even though they were so deeply dominated at so many of these times that they still felt insecure and felt the need to really push back against other religions. Yes, and well, that's, it, it, that's part of the American story, that here are these people coming from Europe, bringing their, their various versions of Christianity. But they knew the place that they were ent- entering was so vast and so full of so many different ideas that could challenge the ideas they were bringing with them, that they themselves felt... Uh, felt uh, uh, under pressure to to uh, to suppress all those other beliefs around them, so that really becomes the question that uh, all of Europeans bringing in their various belief systems need to contend with as soon as they arrive in the North American continent. What do you do with the fact that the world is much bigger and more complex than your own religious understanding <laughs> had previously um, made you aware of? Uh, what do you do with the fact that there's a civilization here of people who have been here um, for millennia? Uh, who have well-established belief systems of their own. How do you explain that, given your own limited religious understanding? So that is a question that endures, and it leads to much of the persecution that we just described. It's also interesting to see not only how it played out individually in terms of personal beliefs and and fears that, that we're talking about, but also the way it became institutionalized within religious organizations within the Church. Yes, certainly, and uh, there's a... there the the uh, massive movement to convert entire populations of people is certainly a, a part of that. Uh, we see that most plainly in the conversion of, of African slaves who were brought here, uh, only a vanishingly small minority of them were Christians when they arrived. But eventually it was determined that the best way to control this population was to root out any former uh, beliefs that they had had. Uh, so the various African traditional systems they brought, including uh, the Akan religion, the Yoruba religion, uh, these are all stamped out in a very um, methodical way, as was Islam. Islam was the, was the faith of, of an estimated 20% of the African slaves brought to the Americas. And you find it uh, enduring for the first generation. You can find in, in the writings of many missionaries who preach the gospel on slave plantations, they would describe their interactions with Muslim slaves and, and say that these these men and women had found ways to accommodate the faith they the faith they brought with them with the faith being imposed upon them. They would say sh- such things as, in our old country, we would call uh, God Allah, Allah, but now we call him God. In, in our old country, we would pray to Muhammad, but now we pray to Jesus Christ. Uh, and so what we find when we look back at the historical record is this process through which First, there is uh, endurance and resilience of original beliefs that, that people brought with them. Then there's a kind of syncretism, a blending. And eventually, in the historical memory, the original beliefs are, are forgotten uh, by the names through which they were known. But their influence 
found ways of enduring. And that, again, is the story throughout the book. The other interesting part, the other side of that coin, is the way in which whenever there has been an existential threat, whether it was the witches of Salem or whether it was 9-11, that pluralism tends to get the blame. Yes, yes. And we also see in each of those moments uh, this rise in rhetoric that uh, affirming and insisting upon uh, the fact that we are a Christian nation. Um, we hear it even now when, when Governor Bobby Jindal talks about, of Louisiana, talks about uh, a Muslim invasion of this country as he did a few weeks back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see a rise in this rhetoric that the United States is founded as and should continue to be a, a Christian nation. But the hidden part and the dark part of that statement of the Christian nation is you hear exactly those words every time there's a rise of violence against religious minorities in this country. Uh, back in the 19th century, when uh, anti-Catholicism was rampant, you hear precisely the same things that people now say about uh, Muslim immigrants. Uh, Anti-Catholic um, sentiment uh, expressed at, through this Christian nation rhetoric led to the burning of a convent, a convent in Charleston, Massachusetts in 1834. The same tor- sort of sentiment was used against Asian immigrants coming into the West Coast at the end of the 19th century. It was used against uh, Indian immigrants, um, Hindus and Sikhs, around the same time. So again and again, we hear the same ideas, the Christian nation ideas, and that the real threat to America, it's, it's uh, according to this rhetoric, is this spiritual diversity, which is so often throughout American history referred to as a kind of infection that must be that must be stopped. It's interesting. To what extent has anti-Semitism fallen into the same category, or is there something different about that? Well, the interesting thing about anti-Semitism now is that it's um, it, it's it's of course no longer uh, acceptable in, in 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 public discourse in the way that anti-Muslim sentiment mm-hmm. might be heard in popular discourse, whether it's on conservative radio or or in in uh, political speeches, you're much more likely to hear uh, anti-Muslim rhetoric than anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic rhetoric. But at other points in our history, of course, that was not the case. It was much more common to hear that kind of uh, just blatantly anti-Semitic rhetoric coming from the likes of Father Coughlin, the the Catholic um, radio personality early in the 20th century, who were much more quick to to uh, identify and fear Jewish influences as being the foreign influences brought into the United States. But an interesting thing happens in the middle of the 20th century. uh, There's this notion put forward that the nation is not just a Christian nation, but it's a nation of Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. Uh, This triumvirate is put forward by by a particular sociologist in the middle of the 20th century. And that has really endured. Um, It's become less acceptable to say that uh, the United States is a Christian nation now. Now we often hear it is a Judeo-Christian nation. Uh, it has not yet been said that it is an Islamic Judeo-Christian uh, nation, and, <laughs> and I'll be surprised if we hear that anytime soon. But you occasionally do hear that you, the nation is formed by monotheism generally, and, and it's those traditions that veer away from that that are the threat. What caused that change? What was it in the cultural and political climate that gave rise to that troika of attitudes as opposed to single Christianity? It was really the the rising uh, social influence of the Jewish community. Um, They had gone very quickly from a community of immigrants 
living in various urban enclaves around the United States to uh, to succeeding in various ways throughout American culture. And that really uh, changed the, the visi- visibility of the American Jewish community uh, and um, led to um, various political victories for those within the American Jewish community in a way that we have not yet seen for other religious minorities. Uh, and so it's, it's a great example of the ways in which uh, a small religious community can become accepted and exert influence well beyond its numbers. Talk a little bit about Mormonism and how that's played out in the context of what we've been talking about, because that's another interesting story inside all of this. Oh, it really is. And then the story of Mormonism begins with that this question that I, I mentioned earlier that, the, that those of European descent had to answer. What do you do with Native America as a, within your own religious reality? Uh, throughout American history, we've seen different... Um, Christian religious leaders deal with this question of how do we make sense of the fact that there was a civilization here in the Americas before Christianity arrived. And the way Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church, uh, dealt with this is he um, revealed an entire scripture that writes the Native American experience into the biblical saga, essentially, uh, joining the America's prehistory with the prehistory that is told in the Bible. And so... Early on, of course, Mormons were not, uh, by embracing this this new religious idea that Joseph Smith put forward, they were not welcome in many of the communities where they first lived, and they were literally chased across the country until they were well outside the borders, and they were allowed to um, set up their own, for a while, their own state in in the area that is now Utah, um, then given... uh, general governance of it by the United States government before those lands were brought into the Union. And so they're another example of a very small religious group that has that has managed to um, navigate the waters of having widespread cultural bias against them until they've been able to uh, exert their own type of political and cultural influence. So they are, in fact, are a real success story in terms of a religious minority um, rising up beyond the the initial biases against them. To what extent has this attitude caused some religions to really flounder, to just fall away throughout history? I mean, obviously we talked about the Jewish experience, the Mormon experience, but there are groups that have risen up and and virtually disappeared historically as a result of pushback. Yes, yeah, well, certainly that's the case. There is this, um, the question of, of, of religious syncretism that I raised, that there is this blending of traditions, this in absorption of one tradition by another tradition, seen a certain way that is a tradition just entirely disappearing. But seen another way, we can look for the ways in which it influences the majority culture into which it is brought. So take, for example, the African traditions that I mentioned that were brought by the enslaved peoples in the, in the 18th and, and uh, early 19th century. One way of thinking about what happened to those religious ideas, those religious experiences, is that they completely disappeared. Uh, um, the vast majority of the enslaved and of their descendants eventually eventually uh, converted to Christianity, and, and many of those traditional ways were lost. But the other way of, of thinking about that is looking for the influences that endured. And we can find the influences that endured uh, within that community and what is what is usually known as the Black Church, so uh, African American denominations that arose uh, in 
in the 19th century. And you can see within their um, varieties of, of worship styles, you can see many of the African influences, whether it's in the, in the column response, response prayer or in, or in gospel singing, which rises out of spirituals. But it goes beyond that, because it's not simply a matter of this particular community has, has found a way to um, has found a way to maintain traditions that seem to have gone underground. Those same traditions then filter out to the much wider community. And so one part of the story of, of Christianity in America is that in the 19th century, we have these moments called the, uh, well, the 18th and 19th century, we have these moments called the Great Awakenings, uh, the moments of great flowerings of religious devotion in which you see the explosion of denominations like Methodism, which goes from less than 5% of the population in the 18th century to more than 30% in the 19th century. And within the types of Christianity that are really taking hold, you see many of the same types of worship uh, styles that you find within African-American churches. So what you're really seeing is that um, this influence brought in by people who did not want to come here, brought in from Africa, filters out through the African-American Christian experience to the much larger culture of American Christianity. So the question of what happens to a faith tradition when it seems to disappear is much more complicated, I argue in the book, than simply fading away. Really, their influence is spreading out in ways that we need to look for. It's often underground, but it's still there, and it's much more influential than we often realize. And within the context of hypermodernity, with globalization, with technology that connects us together so rapidly and so profoundly, is there going to be any impact from all of that as we're pushed against each other more closely? Oh, I think certainly so. I think that the ideas just move much more quickly now, and we're finding uh, we're finding the influence of, of smaller and smaller groups in a in a wider and wider capacity. Uh, just a, an example that I that I like to point to is we look for example at the at the influence of Buddhism. Let's say um, Buddhists in America, practicing Buddhists, are extremely small uh, percentage of the population, just really tiny. And yet, when you look at the numbers of people who claim the Buddha as a teacher whom they revere or as a spiritual in- inspiration, it's it's vastly more. And so. One way that this is happening is that ideas are spreading so much more quickly. Uh, it, you don't need to go to a church to hear religious ideas now, obviously. You just absorb them um, through the web or through any social media interaction. And what is happening is not only with Buddhism, but with a whole array of, of religious ideas, you're finding a lot more syncretism. So you're finding a lot more blendings. And this will have an influence that we, we can't know yet. Uh, it will take some time to, to tell. Peter Manso, his book is One Nation Under Gods. Peter, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My real pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.